0: Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories, with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday.
1: Dragnet. The story you are about to see this summer is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. For instance, Dan Aykroyd. Ma'am. is sergeant joe friday tom hanks is detective pep strebeck <laughs> your new partner there's
2: a dress code for detectives and robbery homicide section 3 six oh five point one zero point two zero point 20. two two point two four point seven oh point eight zero. my name's friday take a lot of kidding about that almost never
3: you know the kinds of things that can fall into an industrial sausage press not excluding rodent hairs bug excrement i hate you strebeck
2: you got a lot of repressed feelings don't you friday must be what keeps your hair up Police officers, ma'am.
4: Why couldn't you have got here before that big, bad, stupid-looking piece of sewage breast stole my white wedding dress?
2: Just the facts, ma'am.
1: We need to ask you a few questions. Their job. You know, Friday, I think we finally found your look. To enforce the laws. This is shaping up to be a little more than
2: just a series of simple robberies. And preserve the safety of decent citizens. Be back. I found the snake. Sure, this city isn't perfect. We need a smut-free life for all of our citizens. Cleaner streets, better schools, a good hockey team. Dragnet, a
1: new generation of courage. Thank God it's
3: Friday. Just the facts, man.
0: Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the 1987 movie Dragnet. Now, the studio was Universal Pictures. The release date was June 26, 1987. The running time was 106 minutes. The rating, PG-13. The budget was $20 million, and the box office was $57 million, making it 14th ranked of all top-grossing films of 1987. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 50% rotten from 34 reviews. The critics' consensus is, while it's a sporadically funny and certainly well-cast movie, Dragnet is too clumsy and inconsistent to honor its classic source material. However, Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. From the loud, confident opening chords of the famous Dragnet theme music, I was filled with confidence that this 1987 Dragnet knew what it was doing. My confidence lasted several seconds, then the original music segged into some sort of dreadful disco rap unmusic, and my heart sank. How could they? How could they possibly make a movie called Dragnet and think that anything had to be done with the music? They make the same mistake at the end over the closing titles. I guess it's some kind of business deal and they wanted to make a lot of money with the music video or something? Hollywood is so greedy these days. God forbid that whoever wrote the original Dragnet theme should make a dime when it can be cloned and corrupted for profit. In between, the movie's pretty good. To be more precise, it's great for an hour, good for about 25 minutes, and then heads doggedly for the standard 1980s high-tech Hollywood ending, which means an expensive chase scene and a shootout. God, I'm tired of chases and shootouts. The movie takes the basic ingredients of the Dragnet TV shows, kids them, and plugs them into a bizarre plot about a cult of Los Angeles pagans who hold weird satanic rites. Dan Aykroyd stars as Joe Friday, nephew of the original, and he was born to play this role with his off-the-rack brown suit his felt fedora and his square jaw with the Chesterfield pasted into it. Tom Hanks is his partner, the nonconforming Detective Streeback, game for anything but puzzled by Ackroyd's straight arrow squareness. There's a series of pagan murders in Los Angeles, and the two cops get on the trail, which leads to a phony TV preacher, some highly placed creeps, and an absolutely hilarious pagan rites scene in which oddly assorted would-be pagans stomp around in thigh-high sheepskins while the virgin Connie Swale, played by Alexandra Paul, is prepared for sacrifice. And that's what she's always called, the Virgin Connie Swale. Friday falls in love with her, and his heart beats so hard that he stays on the case even after Captain Gannon, who is played by the legendary Harry Morgan, lifts his badge. Among the other familiar faces involved in the case is Jack O'Halloran as Emil Muzz, the big killer. You may remember him as Moose Malloy in the Robert Mitchum version of Farewell, My Lovely. Aykroyd's performance is the centerpiece of the film. He must have practiced for hours, even days, to perfect the rapid-fire delivery he uses to rattle off the polysyllabic utterances of impenetrable but kaleidoscopic complexity. Listening to him talk in this movie is a joy. It's an open question, I think. How much did they really want to kid the old Dragnet shows? Jack Webb's visual style was built around a series of deadpan close-ups and clipped one-liners, and there's a little of that in the movie, but they never make a real point of it or have a lot of fun with it either. The visuals are a lot looser than Webb would have enjoyed. And the color photography, of course, is all wrong. This is a movie that begs to be in black and white. Still, it's fun a lot of the time. Several individual shots are hilarious, including a long shot in a pantomime of the two partners trying to show Morgan how the pa- Pagans did their dance. Hanks and Aykroyd have an easy, unforced chemistry growing out of their laconic delivery and opposite personalities. And the movie is filled with nice supporting turns, especially from Elizabeth Ashley as the Crooked City official and Dabney Coleman as the Slime Bait magazine publisher. This would have been a great movie if they bothered to think of an ending and use the original Dragnet theme. The end of the film cries out, cries out, mind you, For the simple, stark authority of dun-da-dun-dun. I wanted to hear it so badly that I walked out of the screening, singing the notes out loud, just to drown out the disco Drano from the screen. And that's the end of his review. So my mom was a big fan of the Jack Wedd TV show from the 1960s. She was too young to listen to the original series that began on the radio in the early 1950s, or the first TD adaptation that started in the mid-1950s. I totally remember seeing this particular movie, the 1987 version, in the theater with her that summer of 1987, and I immediately loved the film. I already knew Dan Aykroyd from The Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, and I think I knew Tom Hanks from and Buddies, which was on reruns by that point. So not too long after seeing the film, I checked out a few audio cassettes from the classic radio program at my local library, and it really was uncanny how much Dan Aykroyd's voice and delivery mirrored Jack Webb, who played and created the original Joe Friday. So in June of 1949, Dragnet started on the radio, and it was successful because it really did sound like real police officers and in actuality, the case were from actual police records and the scripts were written around these cases. In 1951 was the television debut and was very successful as a TV program as well, and it was almost shot like a documentary. Some famous guests on those early shows included Raymond Burr, Lee Marvin, Robert Vaughn, and Leonard Nimoy. So Ackroyd would walk around uh, the movie set listening to old cassette tapes of the Dragnet radio programs to get into character. And he, was, he said he was starting to dream in character just like Joe Friday. The original radio show and the TV show aired in the same era, as not everyone had television back in the 1950s. So the radio show actually aired from 1949 to 1957, while the TV show aired from 1951 to 1959 in the standard black and white. Then it returned in 1967 in color and lasted until 1970. The shows in the 50s were definitely more serious in tone while the 1960s had a bit more camp to it, especially when they were covering the drug crimes of the era. However, there's still tons of fun to watch and you can see both versions in both eras on YouTube. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Dan Aykroyd as Joe Friday, and by this point, Aykroyd was already established as one of the top comedic actors in Hollywood. Starting with being in the original cast of Saturday Night Live back in 1975, his breakout role would actually stem from a Saturday Night Live bit he created with John Belushi, of course, that being the Blues Brothers. Other smash hits in the 80s include Trading Places and Ghostbusters. However, I also enjoyed his lesser known and successful films like Dr. Detroit and Spies Like Us. Tom Hanks plays Pep Striebeck, and nowadays, Hanks is a Hollywood legend. He has tons of Oscars and accolades for his wonderful career. But back in 1987, he was mainly known for his comedies. Movies like Splash and Bachelor Party, The Man with the One Red Shoe, Volunteers, and The Money Pit. And it's crazy to think that five years later, after this film, he would be considered one of the top actors in Hollywood. There's some great co-stars, as uh, Roger Ebert said. Christopher Plummer plays the Reverend Worley, and Plummer had been acting since the early 1950s, and his best-known movie role was as Captain George Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. He continues to act today at the age of 89. Harry Morgan plays Captain Gannon, and Morgan had been acting since the early 1940s, often as bit players, but he's probably best known for two roles, one being the 1967 TV version of Dragnet with Jack Webb and Colonel Potter on M.A.S.H. Alexandra Paul plays Connie Swale, or the virgin Connie Swale, and at this point in Paul's career, her best-known role was in the 1983 version of Christine, which was based on the Stephen King novel. She played Keith Gordon's girlfriend in that film. She would eventually be best known for playing Stephanie the Lifeguard in the original Baywatch with David Hasselhoff. So... Alexander Paul didn't even know about the show Dragnet at all before uh, auditioning for this role, and she wasn't the first choice to play Connie Swale. She didn't think it was even funny when she read the script, and her agent basically told her to read for the part because it was an A movie. Paul said with Aykroyd on set, he would come in and shake hands with everyone every morning, but Tom Hanks was the one that would give her a hug and was totally jovial, similar to their characters in the film. She said he was totally down to earth, and and Aykroyd was professional, but more quiet and reserved. She said that Aykroyd really nailed the lines perfectly, which were not easy. Jack O'Halloran plays Emile Muzz, and I didn't realize that as a kid, but I had first seen O'Halloran in Superman 2, as he plays Non, the mute Krypton villain. He looks much different with a mustache and Dragnet, but he's a great heavy. Dabney Coleman plays Jerry Caesar, and Coleman was always stellar as a top character actor, and while his role isn't super large in Dragnet, he definitely steals the show anytime he's on camera. Coleman had been acting since the early 1960s, but his most well-known role, and my favorite role, is as Franklin Hart in 9 to 5, but he also appeared in great other 80s films like Tootsie, War Games, and Cloak and Dagger, all of which I own, and we'll all be talking about those in the future. The director was Tom Mankiewicz, and and Tom was the son of the famous director Joseph Mankiewicz, and you might know Tom's cousin Ben, of course Ben Mankiewicz, from the TCM Turner Classic Movie intros. Tom was mainly known as a screenwriter and a script doctor for films like the two original Superman movies and the Roger Moore-era James Bond films. Dragnet was the first of the two films he directed, the other one being 1991's Delirious with John Candy. All right, let's just get right into the movie. So it actually starts just like the TV show. Uh, Dan Aykroyd has the Jack Webb dry tone down perfect. And really, Aykroyd doesn't get enough credit for his Jack Webb impersonation. It is so spot on, it's crazy. In addition to the dialogue, it's his body language and the way he walks so rigidly with his gait.
2: This is the city, Los Angeles, California. 465 square miles of constantly interfacing humanity representing every race, color, creed, and persuasion that God, no matter how he is worshiped, chose in his infinite wisdom to deposit here in the cultural nexus of the Pacific Rim. Almost four million people work and play here And like any other place, anywhere, there are those who have it and those who want it. Those who have it enjoy it, no matter how they got it. Those who want it can get it by attempting to better themselves in a sympathetic community populated by decent citizens cheering them on. Or they can try to take it the easy way. Because even in the City of Angels, from time to time, some halos slip. That's where I come in, doing my job to the best of my ability on a daily basis. I work here. I carry a badge.
0: So the Dragnet theme is one of the most iconic in TV show history, and though, again, it dates back to the old-time radio program. The movie, of course, like Ebert says, gives it an update with an 80s polish, and it's just terrible. It's so bad, it's funny, and they should have never done it. So often, people say, just the facts, ma'am, and that's always credited to Dragnet, but it's kind of a misnomer. In fact... Uh, Joe Friday never actually said this in any episode, including the radio and TV, but it was featured in Stan Freeberg's works uh, parodying Dragnet, and so everyone assumes that just the facts, ma'am, comes from Dragnet. It doesn't, though Dan Aykroyd does say it in this film. So the movie is supposed to be a parody, and likely, I don't know if it would have been thought of fondly by Jack Webb, because he took Dragnet very seriously. He also directed and created, he didn't direct, but he created Emergency and Adam-12. And even though when the 1960s uh, TV series was pretty ridiculous, you know, looking back on it now, he still took it very seriously. Again, Jack O'Halloran plays the Heavy, Emile Muzz, and and was best known for playing Non in Superman 2, and he's just great in his role as the main bad guy in in the pagan group in Dragnet. He lights on fire hundreds of boxes of nudie magazines. We'll get get more into that later. So Joe Friday is the nephew of the Jack Webb version of Joe Friday, and there's a picture of Webb... on on Dan Aykroyd's desk, and and Aykroyd even has a pack of Chesterfield cigarettes on his desk, which was a nod to the advertiser for Dragnet during the radio days of the late 40s and 50s. The police captain is played by Harry Morgan, who played Webb's partner in the 1960s version of Dragnet. So in the film, Friday's partner of 12 years leaves the force to buy a goat farm. (laughs) This is where Tom Hanks comes into the movie as Streebeck. Friday is uptight, while Strebeck is essentially the same guy that Hanks played in Bachelor Party. Again, Akron is just a, a genius when it comes to rapid-fire dialogue, and he gets to dis- display these skills often in Dragnet. It's just a lot of fun. His description of Hanks is hilarious as a hipster Freeburg cop, while Hanks listens to his Walkman and eats rice cakes. Remember those? Oh, they taste like uh, styrofoam farts shaped as discs.
2: Care what undercover rock you crawled out from there's a dress code for detectives and robbery homicide section 3-605.10.20.22.24.26.50.70.80 0.20, it specifies clean shirt short hair tie press trousers sports jacket or suit and leather shoes preferably with a high shine on them
0: so friday and strebeck head to a zoo where the animals uh, were stolen and the zoo was defaced with pagan cards as they left uh, as they claim responsibility an anaconda was stolen uh, one um Madagascan fruit tree bat was stolen, and then a lion's mane was shaved so that the current lion has a mohawk. A group of kids kind of look nervously at the lion until Strebeck tells them, it'll grow back, and they group cheer.
1: <laughs> kids, it'll grow back. Yay!
0: Next, they head to Jerry Caesar's palace. This is Dabney Coleman, who is essentially playing a cross between Larry Flint, Bob Guccione, and Hugh Hefner. There's a funny scene where the guys go up to the gate and the woman asks if there are uh, the vibrator repair man. <laughs> the palace is essentially supposed to be like the Playboy Mansion and there's hundreds of women in, in bikinis walking around. Strebeck is like a kid in a candy store while Friday is all business. Thank
4: God, vibrator repair.
0: No, ma'am. Los
2: Angeles Police Department. Sorry. I've got fights some men with rights too. Look them up, Friday. Listen, Hotshot, I'm going to tell you something right now. I don't care for you or for the putrid sludge you're troweling out. But until they change the laws to put you sleaze kings out of business, my job's to help you get back your stench-ridden boxes of smut. And since I'm going to be doing it holding my nose, I'll be doing it with one hand.
0: Dabney Coleman is just hilarious as a sleazy smut peddler, lisp and all. Essentially, Caesar is being shaken down to publish the Pagan Manifesto, and he refused. So the Pagans hijacked all the copies of his latest issue and set them on fire. Joe Friday's diet is like a garbage disposal. He eats chili dogs and smokes cigarettes, while Streebeck eats fruit and salad. Their car gets stolen while eating lunch, since Strebeck leaves his keys in the ignition, and they are issued a four e- they're issued a Ford Escort subcompact as a replacement car, <laughs> which is great.
2: Let me tell you something, Mister. Unlike you, outside of cigarettes, I only have one vice, and a good chili dog is it. So please pipe down and let me enjoy my lunch in peace. With the exception of you and canned cling peaches, I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone or anything that doesn't know you should never leave your car keys in the ignition.
0: So 3,000 gallons of chemicals were stolen. There's a great joke from Hanks when he's told what happens when the chemicals are mixed. Essentially, it's liquid fertilizer, and it is clear as water, but causes the eyes, lungs, and throat to burn and causes vomiting, and if continually inhaled, death. To which Strebeck says, "Sort of like your aftershave Friday." Christopher Plummer plays the leader of a moral majority group, which really seemed to be popular back in the 1980s. Interestingly enough, all the holy rollers seem to get caught with their pants literally down, like Jim Baker, like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. We then get to the funniest part of the movie, at least it was when I was a kid, and, and actually it still cracks me up today. And I've played it often on this show because I never get tired of it. Friday and Strebeck visit the grumpiest woman ever, and her name is Enid Borden, played by the great character actress Kathleen Freeman. Fans of the Blues Brothers will remember her as the Penguin. So she goes from a nun to this lady. It's so great. I mean, hearing phrases like scum-lapping shitbag and that miserable bag of puke was definitely worth repeating at school and or camp anytime I could think of it. We had been advised to follow up on a theft
2: at 8823467 Magnolia Boulevard. At this time of day, it took us 20 minutes to get there. The complainant was the landlady, one ended Borden. Some pagan cards had been found.
4: What the hell do you want?
2: Police officers, ma'am
4: time you pencil dick showed up, why couldn't you have got here before that big, bad, stupid-looking piece of sewage breath stole my white wedding dress?
2: Miss Borden, sewage breath would be your little nickname for...
4: Muzz. Emil Muzz.
2: Hmm. Not much of an improvement.
4: That asswipe also stiffed me for two months' rent when his deposit check bounced. Goddamn pus-faced little pimp stick. All that was left in this room was a big box of these things.
5: Any
6: idea where this animal Musk could be right now? Friends? Family?
4: Nah, he was alone. Took off in the middle of the night. Useless scum lapping shitbag.
2: Just the facts, ma'am. He leave anything else behind?
4: Yeah, tape deck, which I had to sell to make up for the lost rent. So there's nothing you can do about it, you slimy little jizz bucket.
2: Yes, ma'am, although I should point out to you that technically you could be cited for swearing at us like that.
4: Says who, flathead?
2: says the California Penal Code, section 314.1, covering obscene live conduct in public. Good enough for you, lady?
4: And magazines and papers were his down in the trash. No checks or money, I looked. I should have thrown it all in the river the day he left, but unlike some people, I have a heart. God damn it, that miserable little bag of puke.
0: I think we're finished here, don't you, Detective Streeback? There's, great, there's a great chase scene with Emil Muzz through the streets and eventually the beaches of Los Angeles. I always laughed at one part where Muzz drives through some giant stuffed animals and Friday says, Look out, Muppets! M- Muzz is eventually caught after he crashes into a lifeguard tower on Venice Beach. It's funny to see one of the lifeguards do a backflip from the tower to avoid being run into. The interrogation scene after they arrest him is pretty funny.
2: Not to mention the fact that you stole your landlady's wedding dress, which so
7: far is the only endearing thing about you. So why don't you talk to us? Listen, you public pawn. My attorney's on his way and we both know I'll be out of here in 20 minutes on bail. So take off these cuffs and over the door. I wouldn't worry about the
2: door, Muzz. The kind of scum who'd represent you would just ooze right under it. Look,
7: Joe, uh, why don't you go get a couple of cups of coffee? I know I could use one. You want anything, Mus? Chewing gum, Snickers bar, and my attorney, badge kisser!
6: Well, Moe, I guess it's
7: just you and me your balls and this drawer
0: Muzz tells them where the pagan rally is going to be, and Friday and Strebeck have to dress in disguise to go undercover as street thugs. Their outfits are hilarious, as Friday is wearing a red mohawk wig and looks like an overage punk, while Strebeck is a cross between someone in the village people and a 1940s gangster wearing a hairnet. So they have to wear goat leggings and do a hilarious dance, as Ebert mentioned, and eventually they rescue the virgin Connie Swale. We discover that Pagan stands for People Against Goodness and Normalcy. 300 extras were brought in during the Pagan ritual scene. The goat dance actually came from Aykroyd, and Tom Hanks is seeing telling the extras and the uh, bonus features uh, that the dance is sort of like Walter Payton crossing the goal line after a cheap hit from behind. (laughs) So they end up stealing back their car from the pagan rally, and eventually the car gets blown up. They're issued a Yugo, which was donated by the government of Yugoslavia. (laughs) Do you remember those? So they go for coffee, and Strebeck knows a place that serves the best coffee in town, and then that cuts to a strip club. It's the 80s. What do you expect? And I remember laughing a lot when I saw this in the theater, because I'm thinking to myself, God, how old am I at this? I'm probably nine years old, (laughs) but eh, my mom was cool. So the stripper was wearing pasties, hence it was PG-13. I had awesome parents. There's a funny quick scene where the stripper kind of leans over the rail, and Friday looks up at her and simply says, Ma'am. ...to acknowledge her. <laughs> it doesn't tip her at all.
2: I need some coffee.
8: I know where they serve the best in
2: town. Ma'am, you know I hate to admit it, back, but for once in your life, you're right.
0: This is good coffee. It's a lot of fun to see Tom Hanks in these roles that he pretty much predominantly played all through the 80s. But once he became critically acclaimed for Philadelphia, these types of fun comedies were no longer part of his filmography. So Joe, back to the movie, Joe Friday, and it takes his grandmother and the Virgin Connie Swell down to the famous Brown Derby restaurant on Wilshire Boulevard in downtown Los Angeles. I always remember the famous I Love Lucy episodes when the gang was in Los Angeles, and Lucy makes a fool of herself at the Brown Derby trying to meet William Holden.
2: Connie, I'd like you to meet my maternal grandmother, Mrs. Grace Mundy. Granny, this is the Virgin Connie Swale.
0: So eventually, Friday gets captured, and uh, along with the Virgin Connie Swell, and, and Strebeck is tasked with trying to rescue them. And I always love movies where there's tons of shooting and nobody ever gets shot. It's kind of like the A-Team syndrome, but I love it. So at the end of every Dragnet episode, they would give a recap of what happened to apprehend the criminal. They give you the charge and the length of the sentence. On February
1: 21st, a trial was held in Superior Court in and for the county of Los Angeles. The Reverend Jonathan Worley was found guilty on two counts of attempted murder, kidnapping, arson, obstruction of justice, and tampering with public utilities. He is presently in the men's correction facility at Chino, serving 43 consecutive 99-year sentences, which makes him eligible for parole in seven years
0: <laughs> really the only thing negative i have to say about the film is the terrible music and i love the 80s when it comes to music but man the pseudo rap song at the end credits is so bad
2: this is the city it's a city of crime my name is friday i carry a badge 3 15 a.m thursday january 15th it was chilly that morning in the city of angels on this particular occasion, we happen to witness a pagan ritual in progress. See that, back, we're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They
5: got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice.
2: Buddy, we're putting this party on ice.
5: But don't you know we really ought to read them their rights?
2: Read them their rights. Read them their rights.
5: Well I'm here tonight to rap about your rights Cause right now you're in trouble
2: here let's state it clear Here we
5: go, down to the station.
2: You're going to answer some questions.
5: And have some refreshments.
2: What is your full name? What were you doing on January 15th of this year? All we want is the truth, mister. What were you doing in the location in question? What is the purpose of your pagan organization?
5: Whoa, you can't say nothing on me.
2: do things mine we don't
5: get memory long about who's
7: the boss
2: don't forget my name is Ryan. friday i'm the man of the hour the power of power i'm the arm of the law the very last straw i'm on the side of the right i'm good and white knight if you get me up tight, i am a right inside in i'm as strong as the army never can harm me coming down like a hammer get, get ready for a slammer
0: so some fun facts about the film uh akroyd's first choice to play friday's partner was actually jim belushi who of course was the brother of John Belushi, but but Jim was, too, was unavailable and Tom Hanks was cast instead. Albert Brooks was also offered the role of Streeback. The Virgin Connie Swales house ended up being the same house used for Tom Hanks in The Burbs. Alexandra Paul said she got out of a ticket once because of being in Dragnet after she was pulled over during a traffic stop. So Detective Striebeck, which was, of course, Tom Hanks, has a watch on, and he's watching TV on it, which was a big deal back in 1987. And this was this television watch was real, way before the iWatch. And uh, Seiko invented it in 1983 and had a black-and-white display and a separate battery pack and tuner about the size of a Walkman. So of the Joe Friday character, Dan Aykroyd had has has said, I've had a fascination with Joe Friday since I was a kid. Next to Cousseau, he is the most famous cop in the world. I've studied his speech inflections, his mannerisms, and his walk. During the filming, I'd listen to tapes of the old shows. I even started dreaming in character. If there was ever a character I ever wanted to play, it was this. I'm a huge fan of Jack Webb. I basically just love everything he did. Dragnet was something I just always wanted to do, but I never thought the opportunity would come up because I didn't know who owned the rights to the idea. When Universal called and said they were interested in doing it, I think I made the deal to write them the script the next week. So, again, this movie is super fun. If you're a fan of the original, I think, I I don't know how you can go wrong on this one. It's supposed to be a parody, and it's very 80s. But, again, as as, uh, Roger Ebert said, he enjoyed the first half. He sort of enjoyed the second half, but then he didn't like the ending. I didn't care about the ending because the jokes are so good. And there was obviously great chemistry between Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. It's a shame they didn't do more films together. So if you missed this one and when you were growing up, it meant a lot to me because I saw it as a kid and it just became a staple Uh, And I still enjoy it today, and even Shout Factory re-released it on on Blu-ray, and it looks terrific. So in addition, as you know, I love old-time radio, so why don't we play a classic Jack Webb radio program from the 1950s? And now you can hear what Jack Webb sounds like, and prior you hear some clips with Dan Aykroyd as Jack Webb, so compare it. See how he sounds? He did a great job. Until next week, this is Brian signing off.
8: The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet.
8: You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned the juvenile bureau. The high schools in your city have been flooded with obscene literature. You stamp out one source and a dozen more spring up. Your job,
7: stop them. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke king-size Fatima. Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos, superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. And that's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. So, enjoy Fatima, the best of all long cigarettes. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima.
9: It's wise to smoke extra-mild
4: Fatima.
1: Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment... Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
10: It was Monday, October 21st. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Juvenile Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Inspector Lester, commander of the Juvenile Bureau. My name's Friday. It was 10 a.m. when we got to the auditorium of Canfield High School. Stage door. Guess we go right out onto the stage. A you know, better way to recall, though. Huh?
11: You're the men from the police department.
10: Yes, sir. This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. How do you do? You I'm Paul Fisher, the principal
11: here. Come right out onto the stage, and we'll get the meeting started. All right. I yes, see. Just have a chair, there. Thank you. Is the microphone on? <clears throat> Uh, Ladies and gentlemen of the Coordinating Council, members of the Parent Teacher's Association. As you know, this meeting has been called for the purpose of discussing ways and means to bring about an end to the distribution of the filthy and obscene books and pamphlets that have been littering every high school campus in the city of Los Angeles. We've tried every means at our disposal to clean this matter up, and they all seem to fail. On the advice of the Coordinating Council and Mrs. Randall to the PTA, We've called in the authorities. Here to discuss the matter with us this morning are two officers connected with the juvenile bureau of our police department, Sergeant Romero and uh, Sergeant Friday. And now, may I turn the meeting over to Sergeant Friday of the Los Angeles Police Department.
10: Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen... The only way we're going to get to the bottom of this thing and put a stop to it is to get all the information we can on where this lascivious material is coming from. Now, you people, as parents and teachers of the children who are buying and reading this stuff might be able to give us some help. So, uh, if it's all right with you, Mr. Fisher, I'd like to hear from some of the people sitting out there, if I may.
11: Certainly. Go right ahead.
10: Thank you. Well, if any of you people have anything to say or any information, any questions, why we'd be glad to listen to you and do our best to answer your questions.
3: Yes, uh, the lady out there, go right
7: ahead. I'm Mrs. Stein.
10: I know of a place in our neighborhood that has dirty books.
3: I feel sure that that's one of the places
7: where
3: the children are getting this trash. Complaints have been made to the police department. But the man
5: who runs the place has never been arrested.
10: Can you tell me why? Well, uh, ma'am, I think I'd better make it clear now that there's only one way a police officer can arrest anyone for possession of lewd literature. The officer has to prove that the party who possesses this literature does so for the purpose of selling it. Sometimes that's difficult to prove.
6: Well, I told you I can prove
10: it. You mean you can go to this place and buy a book from him? I know. Yes, ma'am, that's just the point. Now, I don't know offhand about the one in your neighborhood, but I can assure you that we've cracked down on hundreds of such peddlers in the past few months. And you can see for yourselves that this doesn't put a stop to it. We've got to get to the source.
5: I have a question for you. Yes, sir? My name's Fred Scott. I'm director of the Square Shooters Boys Club. Yes, sir. The point I'm trying to make is I know the young boys pretty well. With the exception of my boys, 49 in number. I believe that just about every boy in this high school has one of those books, or at least he's seen one.
10: Yes, sir. We're aware of that.
5: Point I'm trying to make is, somewhere in the municipal code, there's got to be a law to forbid such things.
10: Yes, sir. There is such a law.
5: Then why isn't it enforced? It is. What does the law say?
10: Well, how do you mean, sir?
5: Well, I mean, what happens when somebody's found guilty of selling these books? What's the penalty?
10: Oh, well, the law states that an offender is liable to fines, a jail term of six months or both.
5: That's not much of a law, is it? Why isn't there a stronger law?
10: Well, I wouldn't know that, sir. The
5: point I'm trying to make is we need laws with some teeth in them.
10: We have good laws in the state of California for the most part. It's true that we're weak in some cases, but you can say that about most states, I think.
5: Well, you may be satisfied with the laws, but I'm not. I'd say stronger laws. That's the answer.
10: No, I don't think it is, Mr. Scott. Passing a set of new laws isn't going to make this city a cleaner or a safer place for your boys to grow up in. Laws don't decide how moral a city's going to be. People do. Laws don't mold character in young boys either. The parents and teachers do that.
5: I don't think I know what you're getting at. What do you mean?
10: Just this, Mr. Scott. It's our job on the police department to keep filthy junk like these books from falling into the youngsters' hands.
5: Yes.
10: Yeah. Now, on the other side of the fence, the youngster has to be taught to recognize this obscene material for what it is, filth and garbage. And the youngsters have to be taught that in the home, in the school, in the church. Now, if they can be made to understand that the kind of dirt and filth that these books represent, well, that'd be worth more than any new set of laws, wouldn't it? But
5: what about these men who put out the books? The men who sell them? How do you reach them?
10: Through the youngsters. They seem to know the way. The next morning at 8 a.m., after meeting with Inspector Lester of Juvenile Bureau, Ben and I went on stakeout at Canfield High School. From past experience, we knew there was little hope of a quick end to the case. It was going to be a long haul. Tracing the source all the way up the line from the high school kids who bought the filthy books to the small fry pushers, the wholesalers, and finally we hoped to the top, the man who printed the books. We had no illusions on that score. Generally, with the arrest of his pushers and other small timers who worked for him, the top man gets the alarm and clears out before the police officer can apprehend him with evidence that will stand up in court. During the first two days at Canfield High, Ben and I found out nothing. The obscene literature was being bartered and exchanged between students, but the main source of supply was still a mystery. We had one slim lead to go on. Mr. Fisher, the high school principal, helped run it down.
6: We've been watching that boy down in the yard since yesterday, Miss Fisher. He seems to have
10: quite a bit of spending money, expensive clothes, a car of his own. I don't know that boy's family. They could be well-fished. We saw him with a stack of those dirty books in his notebook. He must have had a dozen of them. We're showing them around to his crowd.
11: Travers, are you sure?
10: Joe, hmm? take a look down there. Yeah. Yeah, Travers is showing him something. I can't see what it is. Come over this side of the window.
6: Yeah. Small books. Mm-hmm. He's giving them to one of the other fellows.
11: They've got their wallets out. They're giving Travis money. Come on, Ben. You better come too, Mr. Fisher. Mm-hmm. This way out to the yard? No, no, to the left. That's it. Let's hurry, huh? Yeah, this door, Sergeant. Right here. Mm-hmm. Travis. Travis.
3: Hello, Mr. Fisher.
11: They'd like to talk to you. Yeah? Now, these men here are from the police department. They want to ask you some questions. Shall we
10: go inside? No, it's okay. Come on. Mm-hmm.
3: What's the matter, Mr. Fisher? I haven't done anything. Oh, you see. Come on. What is it? What's it all about?
10: Uh, Sergeant, it'll be a lot easier if we have the truth now, son. Did you just sell those boys out there some dirty books? No, I...
3: Well, I mean, it's only a gag. They're, they're funny books.
10: Have you got any more of them, you?
3: Yes, sir.
6: Can we see them, please?
3: I didn't steal them. Only books. Funny books. Here.
10: Thanks, Almost a dozen. Mm Mm-hmm. You think these are funny books, do you, Travis?
3: Well, some of them. I guess not. It's only a gag, Sergeant. Where'd you get them? I didn't steal them. I bought them off a guy. Who? Why, I can't tell you.
10: Do you have any more of these books? No, sir. Will you show us your locker?
3: I can't remember the combination. It's a new locker.
10: Could you open the locker for us, Mr. Fisher?
3: Uh, Yes, but I'll have to get the maintenance man. All right, I'll show you. Come on down here, sir. This one. 412. I've only got a couple. All right, we'll see. Come on, open it. I haven't done anything. Here's a sample, Joe.
6: Locker's loaded down with them. rotten silk.
3: You can't
8: arrest
6: me. I don't sell the books. I only rent them. Somebody's been briefing you, Who? You're only
10: making it hard on yourself, boy.
3: You can't prove anything. These are my books. I don't sell them.
10: Where do you get them? Who sold them to you?
3: Nobody. I got them, that's all.
10: All right. We'll have to talk to your folks.
3: You can't. They're away. No. No, you can't.
10: Don't. Afraid we'll have to, son.
3: Oh, please. Please don't tell them. Please don't let them know. I'll do anything.
10: All right. Let's have the truth, then. Who are you selling your books for?
3: His name's Barney. That's all I know. I meet him at a cigar store downtown, Fifth and Harrison.
10: Does he sell you the books?
3: He gives them to me. I sell them and then give him the money. I get 10 cents for every one I sell.
11: How
6: much do you sell them for?
3: 25 cents. Some are a dollar. I get
11: 30 cents for those. And the boys in this school have been paying that kind of money for this film? Yes, sir.
10: This man who gives you these books, you know where he lives?
11: No, sir. I have any idea.
10: When are you going to see him?
3: Well, this is Wednesday. I, I was going to meet him downtown this afternoon.
10: The cigar store?
3: Yes, sir. But I don't want to get Barney in trouble. He's been okay
10: to me. Sure. He's done a lot for you. 4 p.m. Wednesday. Ben and I drove downtown with 16-year-old Eddie Travers. We parked the car near the corner of 5th and Harrison and kept an eye on the cigar store. We waited. No sign yet, Travers?
3: No, sir. Barney usually waits by the newsstand there. I haven't seen him yet.
10: How long you been selling for this man, son?
3: About... Three months, maybe four.
10: Any idea where he gets the books?
3: Well, I... Oh, just a minute, Sergeant.
10: Hmm?
3: Yeah? I think... Yeah, that's Barney, the one going up to the cigar counter.
10: The man in the gray suit there?
3: Yeah, that's him. He's going into Juanita's cafe. Is
10: that where you usually go after you meet him? Yes, sir. You better take the boy back to the office, Ben. I'll tail this guy and see what I can find out. Okay, you want me to pick you up later? I'll call you at the office. Oh, you got any matches? No, I'm out. I'll pick some up at the cigar stand. All right.
6: See you
10: later. Yeah. Box matches. Oh,
11: yeah?
10: And a uh, uh, pack of spearmint, too.
11: All right,
3: sir. Much obliged. Uh, got a special on old typical new bourbon today. two sixty
8: nine dollars a fifth. No, no, thank
9: Hey, Rosie. Rosie, another tamale
10: when you get time, huh? All right, Barney. Go for a minute. Yes, sir? Uh, let me have a uh, chicken tacos, a uh, side order of fried beans and a cup of coffee, huh?
5: Chicken tacos
3: on one, side of beans. Another tamale. Anything else, Barney? Yeah, some more coffee, huh, Rosie? The money
9: on one. Hey. Hmm? Slide the ketchup down there, will you?
10: Yeah, here you go.
9: Thanks. They got good tacos in there. Lots of meat It's fresh stuff. Yeah. There's the sugar. Oh, thank you. Hey, Rosie. Here. Here, Rosie. Yeah. Got some new ones in just today. We'll stack them. What
3: are you talking about?
9: You know, the picture book. Good ones. You can make some money on the side. They'd sell good around here.
3: Listen, Barney, I told you once, no.
9: Oh, come on, here. Look them over. Here's a good one.
3: I said no, that lousy junk. The next time you bring that stuff in here, I tell the boss, understand? Now eat that, get out.
9: Why, well, it's a real funny day. Looks great, but boy, what a cool potato.
5: yeah.
3: Come
9: on, come on, eat and get out and take that junk with you. Nah, I don't like you chow in anyway. Well, coffee's certainly cold.
8: Yeah.
9: Yep. you probably get a big boot out of here. Hmm? Take a look. Hmm. Hmm, pretty good. Yeah, it's good quality stuff. Yeah, give me that little book there. Mm, let me show you one. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute.
10: Yeah. Didn't I kill you? Man. How about sell me one of
9: them? Okay. Four bits for the small ones, a buck for the big one. Wait a minute. Let's see, I got... Um, I got 14 of them here. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make you a deal. You can have the whole works for 10 bucks.
10: Okay. You got any more?
9: <laughs> well, you going in business for yourself?
10: No, I got a stand out in Riverside. The books, I guess, ought to go fast. I think I can probably handle another 25 bucks worth.
9: it. I'll get the rest of them back at the hotel. Some of them are in color.
10: Huh?
9: You want to meet me there tonight? Around, 7?
10: Uh, Where's the hotel?
9: Well, you go straight up 6-3 from here. It's just one block on your left. Call the Denver house. I'm in room 337. You going up there now? Uh-huh. I was supposed to meet some guy, but... Yeah, we can go now. I about a check, Rosie, huh? Yeah. Hey, uh, you're probably wanting more of these. I can put you on my mailing list.
10: Okay. The prices are right. I don't want to pay retail. retake. Nah, we can work out a day. Come on, let's go. Okay.
9: Hey, that Rosie, huh? She's really put together. Yeah. Too big. Real cold potato, though.
10: Mm, Some are like that. Yeah. No sense of humor. We left Juanita's cafe and walked up Harrison Street to 6th. We turned left and went down one block. It was five minutes to five when we got to Barney's room in the Denver house, number 337. He dragged out a steamer trunk from under the bed and counted out a stack of books and pamphlets covering the general topic of degenerate filth in stories and photographs.
9: Okay, Mac, there you are. It's 25 bucks worth. Give me the money and the bucks are all yours. Okay.
10: Here you go. Yes. 10, 15, 18. I have to give you a check for the rest. How
9: do I know it's any good? You could take off. I'd, I'd never see you again. You'll see me. You're under arrest. Huh? Hey, you're kidding, ain't let no, go. All off, right, let's hold it right here. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, look, Lieutenant, we can work this thing out. We'll work it out downtown. Now, wait a minute, I can set this thing right for you. Where are you getting this junk? Who's supplying you? Uh, look, why not use your head? you never get the top, man. Not in 10 years you won't. We
10: got lots of time. Come on.
1: You are listening to Dragnet, the case history of a police investigation presented in the public interest by Fatima Cigarettes. If you smoke a long cigarette, it will be in your interest to listen to a typical case history of a Fatima smoker. It's the case of Mr. Joseph G. Hertzberg, city editor of one of New York's great newspapers, and this is his actual signed statement. I recommend Fatimas to anyone who likes a king size cigarette.
7: In my business, the long hours really put smoking to the test. Working overtime means smoking overtime, and that has sold me on Fatima's. No matter how often I light up, Fatima gives me an extra mild smoke. And Fatima flavor, it's much better every time. I found out it's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. And more and more smokers are discovering this every day. Actual figures show Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. So enjoy Fatima yourself. The long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos, superbly blended to make it
1: extra mild. You will prefer Fatima's much different, much better flavor. You will agree. It's wise to smoke extra
7: mild Fatima.
9: It's wise to smoke extra-mild Fatima.
7: The best of all long cigarettes.
10: The filthy literature racket feeds on the curiosity of youngsters and the stupidity and ignorance of adults. It's an all-season business, and in its own quiet way, it has reached a market which the other heavy rackets never hope to reach. Your home and your children. 6 p.m. Wednesday, October 23rd. We checked the records, and the make sheet showed the book peddler's true name to be Barney W. Timpson, 38 years old. He had a past record of one previous conviction for peddling lewd literature in Dodge City, Iowa, in March 1948. We had him brought to the interrogation room.
6: Sit down, Timpson.
10: Okay. <clears throat> well, let's make it easy, Barney. Where are you getting the books?
9: I told you, sergeant. They deliver them to me. Who? The... Different guys. I don't remember them all. They send different guys every time. How often do
10: they make the deliveries to you? Once a month. When?
9: Around the first, usually. Sometimes maybe the second and the third. They bring the books to your hotel? Yeah. They leave a pack up in the lobby addressed to me.
10: They ever use the mails? They never do. They're not that dumb. So you've never seen the men that you do business with? with? Not so. I know them. No. You have no idea where they're operating from? I at. don't know. You expect us to swallow that? I'm telling you, I don't know. Oh, don't push us. That kind of a story, Barney. I'm giving it to you straight now. What else do you want? Who's the supply man? All right, look, we found this notebook in your hotel room, Barney. There's a list of names in it. Is this your customer book? Friend. Okay, okay, the customer. That gives us enough to land on you. I know that.
9: I told you everything.
10: And you still don't know who you're working for. Oh, look. There's a phone number in this notebook. No name to go with it. Yeah. Now we'll look at it. This one right here. I don't know. Must be another customer. Yeah. There's a belong the boss? I don't know the boss. He don't know me. Then who do you buy the books from? Who says I buy them?
9: He must owe somebody a lot of money. Don't worry. I don't owe him nothing. He don't owe me nothing.
10: He does now. What? You're going to jail for him. Barney Timpson was booked into central jail for violation of the penal code, section 311.3. We contacted the telephone company, and they traced the extra phone number in Timpson's notebook to a private residence on Wonderview Drive in Laurel Canyon. A detail of men was assigned to stake out on the place. During the next week, mainly from information obtained from Barney Timpson's customers, seven other peddlers of obscene books and pamphlets were taken into custody and questioned. Five of the seven told us they picked up their supply of books from the Laurel Canyon address. We moved in on the place and found thousands of lewd books and pamphlets stored in the garage. Three men on the premises were taken into custody. They identified themselves as John Alexander, George Kelleher, and Raymond Kester. We brought them downtown and interrogated them for two hours. They refused to admit anything. They were booked in, but by noon, their lawyers arrived, and they were released on writs of habeas corpus. 2 p.m., Ben and I met with Inspector Lester of Juvenile Bureau.
1: Just had a
8: call from the men on stake out at the Laurel Canyon place. They've just been over the garage where the books are stored. they get anything, Skim? A couple of things. Might be fair leads. What's that? Three stacks of books they found were wrapped in proof letterheads from the Havenbrook Hotel. Yeah? We checked with the hotel... They get all their printing done at Rudolph Brothers. Placed out in West L.A. That name's not familiar to me. It's a big layout. They're specially religious books. Bible, things like that. That doesn't add. Not so sure. How do you mean? Be a perfect cover for the racket. (coughs) Printing the Bible one day and a flock of filthy books the next. Could be the setup. Uh, What kind of a name does this Rudolph's place have around town? They've been here long. Fifty years. Good reputation. Well, we could give it a look. Where is the place? On West Third, just below Athens Street. All right. Check the place over, but don't make them suspicious. If anything wrong, no use tipping until we're ready to move. Right, Skipper. We gotta reach the presses turning out this junk and choke off the supply where it starts. Do that and we got a beat. All All right. Right, just a minute. Jeweldoor yeah. lift it. Yeah, Down where? Okay, they'll be right out. Rose and Pacelli, they spotted one of the delivery cars. Where? Downtown. They followed it out to West LA. Yeah.
10: Rudolph's printing shop. 4 p.m., Ben and I, together with two other men from Juvenile Bureau, drove out Beverly Boulevard to Athens Street and, and down one block to the corner of West 3rd, where we picked up Gross and Pacelli on stakeout. The Rudolph Brothers Printing Company covered almost half a square block on the corner of West 3rd and Athens. The front of the plant had display windows uh, featuring expensive leather-bound Bibles and other religious literature. While the other men remained on stakeout, Ben and I crossed the street and entered the plant. We introduced ourselves to the clerk in charge as potential wholesale customers, and we asked to be shown around the shop. It was more than obliging.
3: I'd be happy to show you our plant, gentlemen. The most modern religious publication company in the West. That's our claim. Oh, would you step this way, please? Thank you. On your left there, uh, those are three of
10: our new Ludlow machines. Excellent mechanisms, needless to say. Mm-hmm. You must employ quite a few men in here.
3: Sixty-five
10: full-time. Uh, enough to meet any emergency rest
3: jobs you might want done. Now, um, over here are Bush Emerson hand presses.
10: Oh. You handle only religious books then, huh? Nothing else? That's right, sir. We specialize exclusively in that. You don't take in any small contracts, school journals, things like that?
3: No, our steady customers take up all of our time. Uh, Here on this stone, you see the pages of a new prayer book we're getting together. Very ultra. Mm -hmm. An entirely different uh, kind of typeface. Oh, is that so? Uh, Yes, and back there, along the wall, are new linotypes. The very latest, monotypes. Mm -hmm. Then the uh, proof presses. Next to them are proof readers. And uh, the flatbed trussload press beyond that. Mm, Seems like lots of activity. Business is pretty good, I guess, huh? Oh, yes, we're kept pretty busy. Quality printing is always in demand. Yeah, well, thanks very much for joining us around. Not at all, gentlemen. Anytime. Here, this way out. All right. I'll uh, get you one of my cards here. There you are. Oh, thank you. And when you're ready to do business, why just give me a call. I'd be glad to take care of you.
10: All right, two thanks. We'll do that.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen. Goodbye.
10: Right. All right.
6: What do you think? You got me. Nothing out of place.
10: Yeah, whatever system they're using, they got it down pat. Bibles, prayer books,
6: church announcements, that's all I saw.
10: Hey, Ben, look. Hmm? That man getting out of that car, going into Rudolph's there? Alexander, the guy we picked up this morning out North Canyon. Yeah. What's the answer? I don't know, but it's got to be somewhere in that print shop. We went back to the car and waited. The stakeout on Rudolph's printing plant continued. 6 p.m. The lights in the display windows went out. The shades were drawn. We watched the employees leave. 6:30 p.m. The lights in the plant were still burning. Gross went down to the corner and picked up some hot dogs and coffee for our dinner. We ate in the car. 7:30 p.m. A black Cadillac convertible pulled up across the street. Two men got out and let themselves in through the front door. We waited. Between 7:30 and 8 p.m. we counted 21 men entering the plant. That printing press. It's starting up. Okay, let's move. Yeah. Hey, uh... Gross! you and Pacelli want to go through the back, and Ben and I will take the front. Right, let's go, Mike. Well, it's a neat setup. I had it all figured. Yeah, you didn't spot any side entrances, did you? No, here we are. You can try the door? Yeah.
6: yeah, it's no good.
10: All right. Who is it? Police officers, open up. All right, come on, open up.
9: Stuff. All right, let's hit it quick. Come on again. There we
10: go. There they are, Joe. They're trying to smash the plates. Come on. But,
7: Kelly, but, Kelly, Save those plates.
10: Watch it, Ben. All right, come on.
7: All right, you. All right, hold it. Double against the wall. Hey, Gross, get those plates off the press, will you?
10: All right, hold it, you two.
7: Joe, look out! All right.
10: All right. I round up those men and keep the door's covered. Get away from those tables.
7: Come on over with the wall. That's about most of them, Joe. Those
10: two men going out the door. Come on, head them off, will you? Come on, you. Come on back inside. Get, out get, of way. get your hands off them. Hold it up, mister. Come on over there with the rest. You'll pay for this. I'll sue you down your last nick. Yeah, come on. Simmer down. Hey, Joe. We got Rudolph going out the back. Right. Call the office. Willie. We're going to need transportation. Okay. Take those two with you, huh?
11: Right. Come on.
10: Uh.
6: Well, we got enough evidence against them. Yeah, we're gonna need it. Two full pages of the junk right here. Yeah. Look. Right next to it. Yeah. Page from the Bible.
8: The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed.
1: To protect the innocent. On January 9th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 94, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial.
7: It's amazing how many long cigarette smokers are changing to Fatima. Here is the actual report.
8: From coast to coast, king size Fatima has more than doubled its smokers.
7: Yes, more and more smokers every day are discovering that Fatima
1: is the best of all long cigarettes.
9: It's wise to smoke extra mild Patima.
1: Frank Rudolph and 16 of his accomplices were tried and convicted of possessing lewd and lascivious literature for the purpose of sale. They received sentences as prescribed by law and are now serving their terms in the county jail. Remember this Saturday, because that means Dimension X on NBC...
0: Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com. From 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win.
7: My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out
6: Science!